Hey there. I know that I told you we would be back with more episodes after Labor Day, but we just couldn't sit on this episode any longer. So from Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. The reason I'm so excited about this episode is we've got a pretty special guest. Ezekiel Emanuel needs no real introduction, but I am going to do it anyways. He is an oncologist and a bioethicist. He is also the vice provost for global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Of course, he also served as special advisor for health policy under President Barack Obama and is even part of Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. The reason why we've brought him to Radio Advisory is he recently co-authored a comprehensive 22-point COVID-19 vaccine plan. There is no shortage of news reporting on the progress made towards a vaccine. But I'm not convinced that the average American or even the average healthcare leader understands just how big of a challenge this is for our industry or for our country. Zeke is going to reference his political affiliations in this. If you know anything about his background, this makes sense. But of course, keep in mind, Advisory Board is a nonpartisan institution. Welcome to Radio Advisory, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Do you mind if I call you Zeke? Everyone else does. Great. And where are you dialing into the podcast from? Uh, Washington, D.C. Where in Washington, D.C.? On the border between Cleveland Park and Woodley Park. Oh, my Um, goodness. On the next block over that way is the Swiss Embassy and the Murray School, if you know where they are. Yes, you are in our neck of the woods. Well, I want to go ahead and dive in because you recently co-authored a comprehensive COVID-19 vaccine plan, and it has a whopping 22 steps that the executive branch and Congress should act on immediately. And this is all in the name of ensuring that we have a viable and accessible vaccine for the coronavirus. But I'll admit that not every member of our audience is aware of all of the concerns that you raise about the global race to a vaccine. So I want to start off a little bit big picture here. Let's imagine it's a year from today and America still doesn't have widespread access to an effective coronavirus vaccine. What's the single biggest thing that went wrong? Well, first of all, you have to ask yourself, is there a vaccine that's effective out there? Does one exist? I I presume the question is, yes, there is one that exists. And it's just that it hasn't been manufactured, put in vials, uh, distributed, and then administered. And it's one of those steps that is, you know, just hasn't been successfully completed. You know, I was trained in chemistry. Hmm. And in chemistry, when you want to create a reaction, you always ask, what's the rate limiting step? What's the step that's going to be the slowest that you need to facilitate Mm -hmm. either by introducing a catalyst or introducing an enzyme or whatever you're going to do? And what we went into this and said, all right, from we've proven that vaccine Y is effective. Uh, What's it take from having that proof to actually getting shots in arms? What are all the steps that are needed? Because most of us, and certainly I as a physician didn't know, Mm -hmm. um, and where can 
where's the most likely places that they could go awry. Um, and we did this by interviewing, you know, the drug manufacturers, interviewing the packagers, interviewing the glass companies, interviewing the needle makers, interviewing the syringe makers, interviewing the pharmacies and all the people who normally administer these things. And so your point here is that there, there isn't one thing that's going to go wrong. There, there's a lot of things that could potentially go wrong. But I do want to follow your guidance and say, let's assume for the sake of this conversation that we have access to a vaccine. Frankly, that is where most of the conversation is happening in the news, right? Everybody's latched on to point number one, and that's finding that viable vaccine. I want to focus on the other 21 issues that, that you point out. Right. So do we, because we think, look, even if it's not the AstraZeneca Oxford one, or it's not the Pfizer one, or it's not, it'll be one of them. We've got mm-hmm. so many shots on goal. Something is going to work, unless it's really impossible like HIV. But no one thinks it's going impossible like HIV. Even people who are diehard skeptics like myself don't think it's impossible. So we're going to have something, even if it takes a little longer than everyone expected. That's right. The issue is... All right, you got it. Then you got to manufacture it. And each one of these different types of vaccines requires different manufacturing capacity. Some are fermented. Some are, you know, you're just producing the RNA, etc. That's exactly right. Making enough of the vaccine is a completely different challenge, right? The parts required to ship it, to store it to administer it, and then distribute it in hopes of reaching that herd immunity. When it comes to supply chain, I'm curious if there's, you know, two to three things that you really want to make sure our audience understands about why it is so hard to make what could be a half a billion doses of this vaccine. Well, let's go to step one. A lot of the players in this game have never manufactured a vaccine, period. <laughs> That's like asking, Seek Emanuel, we would like you to make a billion pair of jeans. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know where to start, right? And Moderna has never made a vaccine, you know? Just no commercial vaccine out there that's gotten through the process and made it in vast quantities. And most vaccines, by the way, are not made in billion level quantities each year because you don't need that level. So this is, you know, a big demand. Some of the companies have experienced Johnson and Johnson, and they are very confident. We got a vaccine and we're every quarter we can do a quarter of a billion doses. So by the end of 2021, we'll have a billion doses. Merck is the other place that has lots and lots of experience making vaccines. We've got this production down. That's not our big problem. But for almost everyone else, that's a big problem. So that's, I think, a major issue. And you can see that there are many, many partnerships with the Serum Institute in India, which is the largest producer, also a very cheap producer. But the problem is, you know, are they overselling their production? I'm not privy to information about the Serum Institute. Sure. But what I would say is they produce so many vaccines I often wonder if what's happening is they're a little like the producers. They got capacity and they're selling the capacity over and over and over again, in part because they don't expect everyone to pan out. And so, yeah, AstraZeneca, they bought a bunch of capacity, but it's not going to, you know, it won't work. And we'll shift that capacity to Pfizer or it will shift it to whomever. 
that may be true. It may turn out not to be true. And, you know, I can't believe they have the capacity for a couple of billion more or a billion more doses just idly sitting by, or they can add it so quickly that they can add, you know, basically 67 or 75% more capacity than what they're doing today for COVID. That just, you know, everything I know about the drug industry and the um, vaccine industry is they run very close to their limits. They have not overbuilt and that's good. It's good for efficiency. It's bad for, well, we got to produce 7.8 billion doses here. Well, you don't have spare capacity. How are we going to do that? When we talk about supply chain at advisory board, we get this feeling that there's a sense of whack-a-mole, right? You figure out how to solve for some piece of the supply chain in one part only to create a problem somewhere else. What are you hearing from manufacturers, from distributors, even from the policymakers about anything they're trying to do proactively to avoid some of those supply chain ripple effects? So first of all, everyone says, of course, we're not, we would never compromise, uh, call it measles, mumps, and rubella for COVID. Uh, People need to have both, and we're going to ensure both. So no one will publicly say, yes, we're going to compromise that other vaccine. On the other hand, there very well could be shortages unless we plan better. The two shortages that sort of were surprising to me personally, and potential rate limiting step. One is the glass vials. You know, glass vials, there's just, there's lots of glass out there. Just order some, right? And, you know, what I didn't understand before doing this project is it's special glass. It's not regular old glass. It's very special glass. And there are not you know, hundreds of manufacturers. There's Corning in the United States. There's a German company and an Italian company. Now, one of the companies we talked to was like, uh, we want to build an American plant, but the government, U.S. government hasn't come to us. We'd be willing to, you know, if they're willing to take the risk uh, and finance it, we're, we're willing to set up the plant and produce a bunch of glass vials for them for COVID. Apparently, when we spoke to them a couple of months back, no overture from the U.S. government. So glass vials, that could potentially be a rate-limiting step if they can't actually get those production lines in place, up and running. In addition, you know, it's like little red stoppers. How expensive can little red stoppers be? Mm-hmm. Oh, very expensive. You know, they also can be a rate-limiting step. So that's the first place. The one I was, I would say, blown away by and totally shocked is this step called fill finish. Mm-hmm. First of all, you know, I think I know something about healthcare. Never heard of it before. <laughs> What's fill finish? Fill finish is you take the vaccine you've made and you have to put it into those glass vials in super sterile conditions. Make sure that there's no bacterial contamination, other viral contamination, fungal contamination at all. And the factories that do that are a hundred times more sterile than a hospital operating room. Wow. And the world is running uh, at 85 plus percent capacity of fill finish. Hmm. Every vaccine player in the game that we talked to, this was a major concern of theirs, the fill finish capacity. And they really, really wanted Washington to 
finance the building of two or three additional factories. What they told us is, look, those take two or three years. Now, look, COVID's not going to be gone in, you know, the first wave. But if we start now and build two or three more factories, having that kind of excess capacity, that buffer would be very good for the world, especially as we're very likely to be developing more vaccines for other things. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly why your report advocates for immediate government intervention. I think you used the word immediate 13 times when I actually <laughs> read through the the report. Yeah. But honest moment, when, when I speak with clinical executives, right, those who are seven months into the fight against coronavirus, none of them are actually under the guise that there is going to be some sweeping change that happens with the federal government, at least not in the immediate future. So they're all rightfully looking for something they can do. They want some control and some agency over what they can do to help facilitate the path to a safe and accessible vaccine. So I want to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of a health system leader or a medical group leader. Is there anything that those folks can start doing today to increase the likelihood that they are ready to administer vaccines once it's finally ready? They're at the end of the line. There is, we got a vaccine, it's in the glass vial, it's shipped, it's in your office or your hospital system. You have to now administer it and you have to do it in an efficient manner. And remember, you have to do it not only in an efficient manner, you have to, at least the early vaccines, and we could get to this, you know, two doses. You know, Merck is trying to develop a one dose precisely because of this problem. But, you know, you give it to Mrs. Jones tomorrow, 28 days later, you got to give it to Mrs. Jones again, and you got to make sure you know which one she got, and you got to get her back in. That is a huge challenge. It's a huge psychological challenge. It's a huge logistic challenge to keep track of people, and you got to be prepared for that. How are you going to do the outreach to all your patients or your community? You know, if you're a health system and you're in a inner city Houston, you're responsible for your community. And part of what you should be investing in is how can we be sure our community is going to get COVID vaccine when we get it and make sure that we have the capacity to go down the priority list? Are we training the right people? Do we have the right capacities? Are we going to set up tents and do it that way? How are we going to reach out to people? Or are we going to go, you know, one of the things I've advocated is we should be going house to house. Huh. You know, we don't traditionally do that in the United States. Other countries do. That's right. <laughs> they don't wait for people to come to you. You go to people. So, you know, if you're in a city, again, Houston, you know, do all the hospital systems. The, you know, if I were the mayor, I would say, let's call the hospital systems in. Let's divide up the city. You're responsible for this. You're responsible for that. You know, the, the vaccine's going to be paid for by the government. So you need to, you're going to be responsible for this community you need to begin, you know, here's our census. Here's what we know. You need to augment it and you need to be responsible. And we're, we're going to, you know, you're going to sometime down the line, you're going to want something from the city. I know that. OK, <laughs> we're going to make a deal. You're responsible and your performance is going to influence how I or my successor is going to review your next request. I think that's a very important kind of planning that can go on now. 
That's right. And I think that it's it's relatively uncontroversial the way that you've laid out prioritization for the vaccine, right? Starting with first responders, healthcare workers, essential workers, high-risk populations, and then the rest of us. I think the message for health system leaders is you've got to figure out how much of those tiers are actually in your service area and actually in your community. Because in, in my opinion, the kind of two worst things that can happen is one, it creates so much competition that people are hoarding a vaccine, even if it exists and even if it can be distributed, or God forbid you run out and you haven't actually accounted for the demand that you're actually going to need. Well, we, we have seen, uh, I, I don't want to get political here, but we've seen with the Trump administration, sending out PPE was not done in a uh, uh, an efficient, effective way such that the right amount of PPE went to the right you know, you had 500 employees, you got 500, you know, face masks. No, sometimes you got 17,000 face masks. And it made no sense why you got the big number and this other group that had more people got a smaller number. And I think that has to be done, you know, pretty carefully. I keep saying it's not too early to plan. Mm-hmm. Say something is approved in January, you know, that could, we're four months from January. <laughs> you got, you know, and you might not get it to March, but that's six months from now. You got to get ready, and getting ready is going to take a lot of oomph. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. The battle against COVID 19 continues, and we at the advisory board could not be more grateful for the continued commitment of our healthcare heroes on the front lines. In hopes of bringing a bright spot to your day, we've collected over 50 remarkable stories of strength, teamwork, generosity, and victory from your peers. And we've posted them at our website, advisory.com slash a bright spot. We hope that you will visit this page on those days when you just need a boost. Thank you for being our bright spot. And it's interesting that you bring up some challenges that revealed themselves in the earlier stages of actually combating COVID-19. PPE is absolutely one of them. But the other that comes to mind was actually COVID-19 tests and getting the answers to those tests. I think it would be uh, it would be nice to call that effort patchy <laughs> at, <laughs> at best. Yeah. And I've got a fear that some of the same challenges are going to come up when it comes to getting a vaccine. So your report references this network of locations that should be created to give regular people access to a vaccine. When it comes to things like partnerships, schools, community centers, religious institutions, who should we be thinking about when it comes to making a COVID vaccine actually accessible? I always like to put this in context. Each year, 45% of adults get a flu vaccine, roundabout. We're going to have to get up to closer to 70%, 80%, 90% of Americans getting this vaccine. Can we actually pause and talk about that for a moment? Because there's some there's some new research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's, let's get into it here, Zeke, right? Because just- No, I don't want to get into it because I, and I'll tell you exactly why. Tell there me is, why. There is new research. Ta-da, here's the paper. Ah. Um, and, and behind it is a paper about vaccination coverage required to establish herd immunity uh, uh, against influenza from before, where they're calculating various parameters. There yes. are lots of variables that no one 
controls, right? Um, what actually is the RT, the transmission rate mm-hmm. at the time? Lots of estimates, and it's hard to know with any precision. How effective is the vaccine? We're going to know in the trial population, not necessarily in every population, younger teenagers versus more elderly people. And that's going to vary a lot. And then obviously uh, that will determine your coverage level. And that gives you a sort of isometric plot. But what I hear you saying is maybe that the science is changing and that we're living in this world so far beyond best practices that maybe it comes back to your point about planning now. And if we plan for 660 million doses, then at least we're covered than saying, ah, oh, herd immunity can actually happen at 45% and then not having enough. Is that is that fair? And that's fair. And it's very hard to see that 45% is the right number. I mean, that's the the biggest variable. Not only don't we know what the RT actually is, we only have a range, but it also does depend upon how effective this vaccine is going to be. So let's come back to this idea of getting it in the arms of everyday Americans and how we can actually do that. You you were about to talk about the kind of community network that, that we can build here. Yeah. So when you talk to Walmart or CVS or Walgreens, they do a portion of what we do. Normally, I think CVS says it does 20 million, right? So 20 million is 10% of a minimum amount. Mm -hmm. That's not, you know, I mean, it's a big number, don't get me wrong, but it's not a big percentage of what we need to accomplish. You add on Walmart, you add on Walgreens, you know, you add on a few other spots, you're still, you know, that, that, that's not that big. There's physician offices. You know, what we have established in the past is a very haphazard patchwork system of administering vaccines. Mm-hmm. We don't make it easy. No. You know, just think about it. Vaccine is like, you know, I get the pain in my arm. By the way, I got my flu vaccine yesterday. I got the pain in my arm. I had to go and wait time. And, and this and I don't feel better as a result. I feel worse. Right. Um, so you're telling me that I'm going to go and spend time, wait get a pain in my arm, and I got to do this twice. Um, And, you know, so I think you have to make it really, really easy. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm a bit, have been a big advocate of let's bring it to people's homes. Our substitute in America for bringing it to people's homes is let's do it at work, do it at school, do it at places where people are already. Um, You know, at my institution at UPenn, you know, what do we do for the flu shot? In a normal year, non-COVID year, right, you line up outside the facility. It's literally, you know, I once remember going there once. Last year I went there. It's like this long line. And I asked the person who's ministering, I said, you know, how long is this going to be? It seems like an hour. You know, if you were at the post office, it'd be two hours. Um, They said, oh, it'll be three minutes. I said, three minutes? There is no way. She said, Talk to me on your way out, okay? That's how I feel about the line at Trader Joe's most of the time, too. (laughs) Yeah. She was absolutely right. They had it so down. It was four minutes. And that's the reason everyone was lining up. It didn't take that long, right? It literally was four minutes you got your flu shot. And we have to make it like that. We have to make it so easy. We have to reduce all the potential barriers to it. Right. It has to be easy. It has to be fast. It has to be convenient in your neighborhood. And I think we're not there 
get in the flu pandemic. And then you have to be able to record the person. And so you can, if they don't show up 28 days later somewhere, right? And so all the information is linked, you can actually contact them to make sure that they're going to get that second dose. In the example that you gave about lining up, that really takes the burden off of the patient. It's something that happens in a couple of minutes. It's a normal part of going to work or going to school that day. Of course, we're living in a pandemic where most folks are still at home. But honestly, what that brings to mind for me is the question of how clinical leaders can make sure that folks in historically underserved communities, right, those that that aren't going to travel long distances, maybe those that don't even have a regular PCP, how are we going to make sure the vaccine gets into the hands of those vulnerable patients? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, they have to hook up with either communities that they have not worked with or community organizations that they've worked with on different things and and work on the vaccine. So set up a facility at churches, set up facilities at uh, boys and girls clubs, places that are literally in the community that needs to be vaccinated so that they don't have to travel to your hospital. That's right. You know, who's traveling to your hospital? First of all, you don't want all that traffic. And second of all, um, it's probably not a hasi-tatsi idea to have to bring everyone in. You you need to do your best to bring this to people and where they spend their time. I would say the other thing, you know, that you can see from the uh, testing uh, situation is try to get a test on a weekend. Are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, places are open nine to noon. Yeah. There's actually a place I was looking in Philadelphia open half an hour. It's like half an hour on Saturday. Hmm. That's it. So again, we have to change our paradigm so that, you know, I don't know, we're open from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night. People are all, you know, some people are on the night shift. Some people are just getting off the night shift. You have to make it available. We have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. It has to be as easy as possible. You have to do everything you can to remove barriers. So if I'm going through some of the major points of your report, we started off with, is there actually a vaccine that's available? Can we get enough fill finish capacity? Do we have the glass vials and stoppers and syringes and so on and so forth? Can we get it distributed to those community organizations to actually get it in the arms of everyday Americans? Here's the thing. We know that not every person who should get a vaccine will actually want to. One of the most alarming stats that I've seen on this is that 35% of Americans say they won't get a COVID-19 vaccine even when it's available. What should healthcare leaders be doing to combat this kind of fear and hesitation? What I would say is the, the political leaders need to be very visible about getting their shot. Right up front, they need to show they're willing. We need to get celebrities and uh, influencers, whatever the hell they are, to, <laughs> to do this as well, um, very visibly. You know, we have to make it a positive valence on doing this. You need to get people who the public recognizes and the public trusts in some way. That is going to be critical. And I think that is going to be one of the key elements. Are we going to overcome everyone's Resistance? No. Employers can maybe make their workers get the vaccine if they're private. Even public, I guess the University of um, California has said that its students and its faculty and staff will have to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That's true for lots of stuff. You can't come to University of Pennsylvania without getting a 
you know, a list of vaccines. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely right so that the government doesn't have to, you get it, but we may still fall short with that. And I think once you've got tens of millions of people, not a lot of uh, adverse reactions, you know, the attitude will change. What I worry about is that not only will the attitude change, but the interest in the vaccine, once it ceases to be such a big threat, we saw this with H1N1, you know, the start of it is like, oh yeah, absolutely. We've got to get it. And then, you know, it's like it passed on not getting it. That's right. And you kind of famously referenced this historical example of Elvis actually getting a polio shot on the Ed Sullivan show, right? As you know, I don't know what the maybe it's TikTok version of that is for 2020. This is another area, though, where it strikes me that clinical leaders can really step in, right? People trust their physician. And I'm curious for, for your take as a doctor, how can clinicians actually get ahead of some of this medical information? How do they become part of the marketing that this is something that everyone should be doing? Well, it's that, uh, I think you're 100% right. Doctors and nurses are critical to this. And I do think that inside their community, they have to be made available and healthcare organizations have to utilize them. And I think Frankly, medical societies, uh, local medical societies need to Mm. take an initiative and be uh, very responsible about this. So, of course, the work doesn't actually end at this point yet either, right? Even when a vaccine arrives and when it starts getting distributed to the people, the next challenge, which you've actually referenced a couple of times, is actually tracking and monitoring who's getting vaccinated What outcomes are we observing? And have they come back for their second dose, which we know is going to be a big challenge of of this particular race to a vaccine? Again, this is where I think a lot of healthcare leaders are looking for some agency and some control. So let's pretend for a moment that there isn't going to be a trusted and transparent tracking system that comes from the government. What do you recommend health system leaders do? They're going to have to create their own tracking system of their the patients who they know and make it work in their community. Uh, and again, I think this is where the larger community, not, not every hospital should make its own little widget. You need to all come together and make one widget that everyone in the same city or same metropolitan area is going to use. Have you heard any examples, whether it's from health systems, but I'm curious, this is also a moment where manufacturers, distributors, right? Have you heard of such, such talk? No, but I do think this is a situation where maybe... The dominant payer in a community can do it, or you know, if you have a state blue, for example, or a regional blue, maybe you have the mayor of a city take the mm. lead. Those are the kinds of things that, that have to happen. Now, when the FDA actually approves a vaccine, we know that it is going to face some pretty intense scrutiny, right? Things like, was it rushed? Was it actually based on good data? Did political pressure play a role here? And those questions could be pretty intense, uh, especially if, as President Trump has suggested, a vaccine becomes ready right around Election Day. I'm doing air quotes. So I want to fast forward to that day when the FDA announces that a vaccine got approval. Are there specific factors that you'll be looking at to determine whether the agency made the right move or perhaps not? Well, look... (laughs) The key variables are going to be how many people in the control group got COVID versus in the vaccinated group. And did they confirm 
not only that they clinically had it, but that they had it by a laboratory test, PCR. That is going to be critical to have that data, have it transparent so everyone can look at it. But that's not all you're interested in. I was going to say, that's a pretty simple answer for a very complex question. (laughs) You're also interested in side effects. And what you're going to get at that point are very short-term side effects, a couple of months, three, four months. And so you're going to be wanting to look at what side effects did people experience, how severe were those side effects, and how did they break down by, again, the placebo group versus the vaccine group. What you find out, (laughs) and I, I think this always surprises people, is Give people a, a, a placebo, they get side effects too. Right. They get the same itching, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that other people do. Um, and uh, what you have to look at is what's the differential? How, how much more did people who got the vaccine experience? And, and that, that'll, God willing, it'll be small. But we should remember, it'll be small, but the total number of people who got a vaccine will, you know, in these studies will be 30,000, 30,000. We're going to try to vaccinate 300 million. (laughs) Okay. Let me remind people for every person who was in the trial, we're going to do 10,000. That dramatically increases the risks of problems. And, And so there's problems you'll see of people in the trial, but there will inevitably be problems of, we will see only when we do larger numbers of people. Uh, I, I was told the story by, uh, I think it was Tony Fauci. He said that the great vaccine maker of the 20th century, while we all know Jonas Salk, actually was a guy named Maurice Hillman. Maurice Hillman saved more people in history than anyone else. He uh, developed all the vaccines, uh, all the vaccines. He developed many vaccines for Merck. He said that he did not sleep easily when he introduced a new vaccine until 3 million people had experienced it. And then he said that that was a significant number that he thought every side effect they were going to see, they would see. In 3 million Um, people. That's the number you got to get to. How many are included in phase three trials typically? (laughs) 30,000. Yes. So much less than 3 million. Right. Much less. So so even even the 3 million number is 100 times the clinical trial number. So that just gives you a sense of, you know... Safety is a big concern. You're giving it to to healthy people who haven't seen COVID, aren't likely to see COVID. And this is exactly why it is so important that we have a mechanism to actually track not just did someone, yes, not just did somebody get their first and second dose, but let's try to find out what are these reactions that are are coming, uh, especially as more and more Americans uh, get the vaccine. Yep. So Zeke, I think it is easy to look at the long list of challenges that you've outlined and feel pretty discouraged. I will admit that that was my initial reaction upon upon reading it. So I'm, I'm curious, is there something that gives you confidence, that gives you hope in the face of this incredibly daunting task that's ahead of us? Uh, the, <laughs> it can only be political, the faith in a new administration. Um, <laughs> look, this is, a, this is a managerial, logistical challenge. You got to look at everything we outlined. You got to talk to the critical industries at each node, and you got to figure out how to solve that problem. And you got to be systematic and go down the list, doing the most difficult challenges, which we discussed the glass, the fill finish, et cetera, first. That's not, uh, you know, as they say, brain surgery, but it is a big, complicated endeavor. 
Can we do those big, complicated endeavors? Absolutely. That's what gives me faith that it could happen. It may delay a little bit every, you know, enough people getting the vaccine. That's what worries me. Um, and there could be some, frankly, some social discord because people who want it can't get it. But I think I think that's, you know, it's a do it's a doable, it's a solvable problem. Well, Zeke, I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. At the end of every episode, I give guests a couple of minutes to just speak directly to our listeners and our audience. So considering everything that we've discussed today, and perhaps even what we haven't touched on, what's the one thing that you want to make sure health system executives are focusing on right now? You can't do it alone. And don't try to do it alone. You have to partner and partner effectively, and probably partner effectively with people who you've traditionally considered your competitors. In this endeavor, uh, you gotta, quote unquote, bury the hatchet, uh, collaborate, and I think make this collaboration work more efficiently. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Zeke calls the path to designing and distributing a coronavirus vaccine one of the most challenging initiatives ever undertaken. And keep in mind, this isn't something that's simply going to be handed to us. There is a role for every player in the healthcare industry to make sure that we can package, ship, and administer a coronavirus vaccine to 300 million Americans. Even if we have to do that, twice. So if you have questions about what role your organization can play on the global race to a vaccine, remember, we're here to help. And we didn't even talk about syringes and needles. I know, I know. (laughs) 